Hi, I'm April. And I'm Sam. And welcome to Current Climate. Join us each week as we learn more about what we can do to help the natural world with small changes and big actions. We wanted to start this podcast as a way to encourage ourselves to learn more about the environmental issues. I've always cared about the environment, but I am often overwhelmed by the big challenges environmentalists face on a national and global scale. I wanted to make this podcast to help people like me learn a little bit about environmental issues, but in a bite-sized, friendly way. And I am so excited that Sam asked me to be a part of this because so often I have the exact opposite problem. Um, I went to school for energy and environmental stuff. I have worked at nonprofits. Um, I focus a lot on legal and policy stuff, but then in my day-to-day life, I am not good at walking the walk. I talk the talk all day long, but when it comes down to actual changes, I am not the most reliable. So we're not going to be experts at any of this stuff, but, um, I do have a law degree with a focus on energy and environmental law, uh, and I currently am a sustainability and outreach specialist at a prominent waste and recycling company. And I would say I know even less, but I do have a degree in anthropology and I've spent a lot of time studying how humans react to changes in the world. And I think that my understanding of like cultural backgrounds and how people might react to the environment changing and to policies about the environment could be helpful for this topic. Being able to switch your lens um, and be able to see these different topics from other perspectives, that's so important because it's so easy to say something's right for one group when it could be totally wrong for another. Um, So I think it's definitely helpful to have that background. As I said, my background is in trash, it's in garbage, it's in recycling. Um, I love it, and I imagine a lot of the stuff that I say throughout this podcast uh, will be about garbage. So I figured I'd start strong with our first interesting fact, just a quick little tidbit from the trash world, uh, known as Mr. Trash Wheel. Mr. Trash Wheel is my absolute favorite celebrity. I stand him, (laughs) if you will. Yes. (laughs) Mr. Trash Wheel is the most ridiculous thing to ever happen. He's a cult hero from Baltimore, Maryland. Um, And basically it's a giant conveyor belt, solar powered with two big googly eyes on it. Now this sounds like the most ridiculous thing and why would anybody rally around it? But the whole city does. Um, There's beer made, named after Mr. Trash Wheel. There is stuffed animals. I've personally seen stained glass windows made in the likeness of what? Mr. Trash Wheel. Yes. I mean, you get creative people and you get something like a solar powered conveyor belt for trash uh, together and you get stained glass windows, apparently. That's amazing. <laughs> but so, <laughs> so what Mr. Trash Wheel is, it's a solar powered conveyor belt that uses the current uh, in the water to suck up garbage. And the garbage goes over the conveyor belt into a giant dumpster attached to it. 
And then they collect the dumpster and take it to a local waste company. So far, it's collected over a million water bottles out of the water that would eventually make its way to the ocean. It's collected 700,000 plastic bags. Um, and then it lists random things that it's collected, like a keg or a snake. <laughs> oh my now gosh. It's a yeah. And honestly, it's the best Twitter I've ever seen. It is, whoever's running it is incredible. It is up to date. It's got the most recent memes. It's got the best cartoons. It's got the link to all the beers named after Mr. Trash Wheel. Um, and <laughs> it works so well. And it's so popular that they now have a professor trash wheel. Um, who's a woman, by the way. I mean, it's a trash wheel. It doesn't have any gender, but Professor Trash Wheel is a woman. And then there's, <laughs> <laughs> I know. And then there's Captain Trash Wheel. Okay. Well, so first of all, I definitely want to get some Mr. Trash Wheel beer, beer like definitely. Um, 100%. Yeah, that, that's great. <laughs> and then the stained glass window definitely is mind blowing. Now, do you know where that was? Was that, because like, you know, obviously, fingers crossed, I'm hoping it's a church, but I doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, this, the guy who helps design uh, Mr. Trash Wheel, his whole bathroom is dedicated to the Trash Wheel. It's got original blueprints in it. Um, and he added, he commissioned this stained glass window after seeing one for sale uh, that he was too late to buy. So he has the stained glass window hanging in his bathroom, along with all this other trash wheel memorabilia. Um, and I need to see that bathroom. I've this never needed keeps, to see a bathroom more. Yeah, this just keeps getting better and better. <laughs> I feel enlightened. And I also didn't realize, because we had talked about this briefly before, but I did not realize that Mr. Trashville has a Twitter and is up to date with all of the pop culture. So it's I'm definitely going to check that out. And like all the bio says is likes tires, not broccoli. Okay. Big hit to the broccoli lobbyists, but <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just so funny. Whoever's running it is just absolutely fantastic. Um, and there's also a live feed. So there's a camera attached to Mr. Trash Wheel. So you can watch it all day long. It just kind of bobs along and sucks up trash. So I said it pulled a snake out of the water. Mm -hmm. There's a comic of it, and they call the snake. The snake's the character now. It's Mr. Snake. Um, so creative. <laughs> and, yeah, and it's just like there's oh, so many cartoons. They put the trash wheel in like an Animal Crossing meme. It, whoever's doing it, they're just on point. It's well done. Um, so the snake and was it's alive? a solar-powered trash thing. Yeah. Okay, good. Because I just assumed yeah. the snake was dead. Uh, the whole thing is so friendly to wildlife. Like, right now in uh, Mr. Trash Wheel, a duck has a nest. Like, oh, cool. That's, there aren't a lot of moving parts to this, only the conveyor belt. And because it's not, like, powered by a motor, mm -hmm. um, there's not a whole lot of things that could damage animals. So the this occasional, yeah, the occasional duck gets sucked in, um, or a seagull, or a snake, but it just goes into the back dumpster. Yeah, 
they just like it doesn't move like, fast enough and it's all open the duck can get out okay cool or the seagull or i guess yeah. the snake would have a little <laughs> bit more pr- trouble perhaps yeah but so it was a ball python okay um, so, so that's like a big snake <laughs> yeah that's, that's the biggest snake that is that is wild wait why <laughs> now there's even more questions about how this ball python ended up in the water and like you know how it ended up in the water you know someone bought it as a pet and decided they did not want it as a pet and thought they were returning it to their natural habitat <laughs> and, and by letting it loose in the water not thinking about what what it actually is where it actually lives um they just let it loose oh like alligators in the sewer <laughs> moving right along we have some articles to share with each other now the idea here is i read an article april has not seen she has no idea what it's about april found an article that i know nothing about and we're going to share the title of our articles with each other and get a reaction and then um you know we can share our opinions blindly we can make guesses about what facts might be in the article and then the other person will fact check and share a little bit more about what they learned i think so many people stop at the headlines oh i you sure know I if, it's, <laughs> if it's catchy if it's clickbait i'm stopping right there and i'm saying uh well, caitlin jenner ate a baby did you guys hear like i'm not reading the whole thing it cut off the word carrot caitlin jenner ate a baby carrot it was delicious <laughs> you know we jump to conclusions all the time so uh you want me to read my headline first sure all right okay so just your first reaction new trump public land rules will let alaska hunters kill bear cubs in dens all right, so first off, don't love the word Trump, but you know, I'm not gonna fault the article for that. Um, second off, I do know a little bit about um, hunting, hunting license, and the importance of, you know, allowing humans to interact with the environment to keep certain populations at a good level for everyone to be like, super happy. Um, I mostly know about that for wolves. So I'm not sure what bears are doing in Alaska and if it's an issue or anything. Um, but I would assume that in the past they would, you know, avoid people killing babies. You know, babies aren't, I guess I should say cubs. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Both, for sure. I feel like cubs aren't as threatening to human populations. Um, They haven't had a good chance to interact with the ecosystem. So there's really nothing, in my opinion, to warrant allowing that in dens. Um, It seems very sketchy. I think that hunting can be good for the environment in some cases. Like, I don't know if that's super weird (laughs) to hear from me, but um, like in a controlled setting, working with park rangers and all of that and i just don't think a lot of people would be down with that i don't know like what's even the desire 
So I agree with you. Um, I think that's where environmental realism comes in. Uh, in certain places, they've killed off all the predators. And so now populations will overrun, starve, um, like the deer population will uh, starve itself out. They'll jump in front of cars. Now they're a danger to humans. Um, but a controlled hunting season that's got two different seasons, cutoffs to hunt, and rules about what you can and can't kill, it's all a very reasonable thing. Mm-hmm. So I chose this article because it made me think of just that. Um, and because, wow, there is nothing that could immediately get my heart racing more than a Trump public land rule um, <laughs> and killing baby animals. Right. Nothing could get me more on edge than that. In 2015, the Obama presidency put into place rules uh, in Alaska to prevent people from baiting bears with like donuts to kill them um, and like going into dens to kill baby predators. For a long time, that was how Alaska managed their stuff. They would um, kill the predators like bears and wolves to allow moose and caribou populations to increase so then they could have a greater sport hunting opportunity. Sport hunting um, means that you're not always eating and using everything. You're doing it for who can get the biggest. Um, it's, it's a competition, uh, less of a means of survival. So that was how Alaska previously managed their wildlife. Then in 2015, they stopped allowing people to lure these animals. They didn't allow them to kill the animals in their dens. Um, You couldn't use artificial light like flashlights to shine into a dark den, which confuses an animal. So now that has been rolled back. I was curious about this because reading the first article, it said that the 2015 regulations didn't take into consideration the indigenous people. And like you said before, like you've got to see this from other cultures. And like I thought okay, yeah, I guess if that interferes with indigenous people's hunting, um, I guess it, it, there could be a different way to look at it, even though a lot of times there are special rules for indigenous people. Mm-hmm. But I don't think indigenous people have survived for centuries luring bears with donuts. So right. that's, where, like, <laughs> that's where like the confusion comes in. Um, and honestly, the whole thing, it, the press release and different articles about it, they mention states' rights a lot. So in reality, this whole regulation to roll back the federal law is so that Alaska can make its own decisions about Alaskan wildlife. It can closely align with those already established in Alaska the state should be able to decide, the state should be able to manage their wildlife the way they always have. Um, And even though it doesn't make sense to control a predator just so you can kill its prey when it becomes overpopulated, that is what the state of Alaska would now like to do. I don't believe it has anything to do with indigenous people. There's one quote from um, the Tanana Chiefs Conference uh, that mentions, you know, centuries-long sustainable management practices. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that was probably when it was one or two bears at a time. 
or, you know, it takes a bunch of people to kill a caribou. Not when you have a shotgun and you can do whatever and a truck to carry the caribou and all of that. Um, so when we were looking at these articles, um, I couldn't personally find anything that gave what I felt was a genuine indigenous uh, perspective on the issue. But if anybody finds any resources like that or knows anything from the indigenous perspective, I mean, we'd love to hear it. We're not set in stone that this law is not, you know, favorable to indigenous people. We just don't know and weren't able to find the resources. Um, and so that rollback was done by the National Park Service. Um, and the law came out on May 27th. I believe the new law went into effect. So anybody can go and look that up and yeah, learn a little bit more. So I definitely chose a clickbait title because I thought that would be fun. Okay, the title of this article is Scientists Warn of Zombie Fires in the Arctic. I love everything about that. Like, I guess first ignoring the word zombie, which is just immediately going to pique your interest. Fires in the Arctic. That sounds weird. What could, like, I don't know what what it could be burning and then if it's zombies okay so here's here's my guess uh, zombie fires in the arctic <laughs> um i guess my guess would be zombie fires in the arctic what's the zombie part um i guess they're burning dead bodies for fuel in antarctica <laughs> which is how you misconstrue a headline. <laughs> <laughs> but also it's the Arctic, not the Antarctic. Exactly. Why we shouldn't base anything <laughs> on Facebook comments alone. <laughs> All right. So what's it really about? What are we looking at? So the term zombie fires, it actually seems like from a little digging, not in this article, but from other digging, that there's some debate about using that term because it's so clickbaity. Um, I think that's fine if it gets people interested, honestly, because what it means, um, or synonyms for it, is a holdover fire. This is a situation where a wildfire broke out in the Arctic, and that was in the warm season, summer, you know, as warm as it gets up there. And then with cooler temperatures, there's less of a chance of things being dry or hot and fires breaking out. However, these zombie fires can kind of smolder under the ground through the winter and reignite. When, what? <laughs> yeah. When it, temperatures become warmer again and the sun is drying things. So basically, um, this article was based on, I think just an interview or statements made by Mark Parrington, who is a wildfire expert at the EU's Copernicus Atmospheric Monitoring Service. So this is over in Europe, and he was mostly looking at Siberia, so northern Europe and Asia. And using satellite footage, they could see that there are fires kind of picking up, and they're in the same areas that were hot spots last year. So the theory is these are the smoldering fires under the ground that have reignited. Basically, um, Harrington says that we may see large-scale fires in the same areas as last year as a result of this. You asked, like, what could be burning? And basically, the peat layer, which is uh, decaying 
plants and animals and things that are almost soil but not quite yet is what warms up, dries out, and then can become really good fuel for a fire. We found an article about Alaska, and this one talked about Alaska too, um, specifically talking about how both Siberia and Alaska had warmer than normal weeks last year, 10 degrees Celsius higher than normal. These wildfires are directly related to climate change. As temperatures increase, um, that means more things will dry out, and it's more likely that fires can start and then smolder underground all winter and start again the following year. So I was really curious about how we could prevent these zombie fires from reigniting because that's concerning, especially after such a bad year for wildfires as 2019, like to have that happen again this year is really scary and it's devastating to the animals, people, and also just like the CO2 levels. So it's like, it's being caused by climate change and it's also making climate change worse. So I'm concerned about that, but basically the solution is to manage vegetation. And so there's different practices that um, forest rangers and firefighters do to either get rid of vegetation with machines or goats. <laughs> they recommend oh, yes. like having- Introduce <laughs> yes, yes, bring goats to the Arctic. So I get that climate change, that is going to be, that's what you have to address to really stop these fires. Because introducing goats into the situation, let's say goats are, are the solution that uh, scientists around the world come to for this. You introduce goats, well now there's just goats that can light on fire. Where there were, <laughs> now the goat population of the Arctic is struggling because we introduced the goats and they're lighting on fire. I think these aren't <laughs> and, wild goats. <laughs> they're they're herded goats. Um, they're, they're just as flammable, Sam. They're just <laughs> as flammable as wild goats. I have not tested that, but I would think that <laughs> domestic goats and wild goats are equally flammable. But anyway, yeah, I, I chose that because of the zombie fires. Cause, and I had never heard of these holdover or sleeper fires. I just thought that was really interesting. And basically something to be aware of the long-term effects of a wildfire. It could happen again, basically. April and I thought it would be a fun idea that while we're talking about a lot of, you know, current events or policy, stuff that might affect us all on a global scale or a national scale, it might also be fun to try out some lifestyle changes that could help out the environment. And we're going to give ourselves a challenge each week. Um, so this is our first episode, so we don't have anything to discuss from last week, but going forward, the idea is we'll reflect on how easy the challenge was, how difficult it was, anything that surprised us, or um, anything we learned or realized. Okay, so our first challenge is to try composting for a week. Now, question for you. Do you have any experience composting? Um, so my only experience is that growing up, we used to rake all our leaves into a big pile, and my dad would say, bring this to the compost pile, which was um, some trees in the back of our house, and it was just leaves. That was all we put in it. We never used <laughs> We did it for years. We never used the soil. If there was nutrient-rich soil, we never used it for anything. 
but every year we had to bring leaves to the compost pile. Interesting. Oh, that, that soil must be fantastic <laughs> because it was never touched. We never touched it. That's <laughs> like, that would be straight up like a forest floor. You know, all those leaves just piled on top of each other, rotting away. Just so many leaves. We had a big yard. We had a lot to rake. So not a fan of that job. Um, but so that's my only experience with composting. Besides the fact, so I do work for a waste company. Composting is something we offer. We recently expanded to a very hip state, <laughs> a hip region, and they all want to do composting. They all want to do it at all their events. Um, so on like an industrial scale, I also okay. have some experience with compost. Cool, cool. Yeah, my um well i guess my experience with compost is a little more in depth because we also kind of had a pile of leaves in the backyard but it <laughs> did have chicken wire around it it was like a big oval and my mom did use the compost for her garden um so basically growing up i i think at oh apparently growing up my dad built a compost pile at our old house like before the chicken wire simple situation he built like a four foot wide five foot tall like gated area for compost or something like he read about it in a book and my mother couldn't understand it at all and she was just telling me about this recently and <laughs> he just abandoned it they, like it was only ever like two feet of <laughs> compost in it and she did it must be for like an agricultural setting not for a backyard with like some gardens but you know so like I definitely grew up with composting being a normal thing to do to the point like in high school if I was at a friend's house I and I had a banana peel I'd be like do you guys have a compost pile um and usually the answer was no so I quickly yeah, learned that's weird. <laughs> yeah I quickly learned I was a weirdo um but my mom loved gardening so it it just made sense and so yeah up until the point where I moved out of my mom's house I was composting regularly and then when I moved out, I moved into an apartment building. And this kind of gets into my next question for you, but I guess I'll roll into my answer of why we don't currently compost. And basically in my apartment building, there was just no good way to do it. The first few months, I actually saved food scraps and gave them to my mom when I saw her. But then like if a plan was canceled to see her, I just had like rotting stuff <laughs> for another week and it was not great. And then I also found out about a local community garden that would collect people's food scraps. But I was just too lazy to drive over there, to be honest. Like, it just never happened. So I stopped composting. And no, it's like, been let me say, this is exactly my problem. This is me to a T. I <laughs> love the idea of composting. It makes a lot of sense. There's so much food waste in the world. I'm not saving my food scraps. I'm not putting them in the freezer until I see someone with a community garden. I'm mm -hmm. not going to do it. Uh, and that's what they say to do. They say to put it in the freezer. No, I'm just going to throw it out in the garbage. <laughs> unless it's easy, unless stuff is easy, I usually do not take the sustainable path. And that is why I'm very happy to be on this podcast with you. Excellent. <laughs> well, so this is a good 
first start then because um, I definitely want to get back in the habit. I'm now in an apartment, in an apartment um, that has a yard that I can use. So I do plan on making like an actual compost pile out there, but that's not the only solution. Um, people who do live in apartments or don't have a yard or, you know, they just don't want to do the outside thing. You can actually order compost bins that can be set up in a home. Um, you get worms in the mail. I my understanding is correct. <laughs> oh, I don't get worms in the mail. Maybe you get worms in the mail. <laughs> but it's a it's a good option um, for anyone who really does want to compost and is living in an apartment building or just doesn't have access to an area that makes sense for it. My game plan this week is to make a very small kind of like wooden structure to hold my compost in one area which is completely unnecessary you genuinely could just like like have a pile of leaves in your backyard or like put some chicken wire but I I don't know I like the idea of really knowing where it is and being able to turn it um one thing they recommend for compost piles is to aerate it by like stirring it around from time to time and having a dedicated spot I think will just encourage me to do that the other thing that is important to know is browns and greens. So our food scraps are rich in nitrogen, which is greens, and then dried leaves in the yard, cardboard, paper, um, that's carbon rich. And so that's the browns. And it's important to have a combination in your compost. You know, if you're after good soil for planting, it's a good reason. But I think more practically, it just prevents your compost pile from getting really stinky. And nobody wants that. <laughs> and I just use a bucket. Like I have like a bucket over in the corner. Uh, it says Home Depot on it. Um, can I use that as my compost starter? I would say yes. I would say you'd want to put in a good layer of like dried leaves, like a browns layer at the bottom so that it's not just like, you know, like orange peels sticking to the bottom of the bucket and getting slimy. Like we don't want that. Um, but I think that that would Yeah, work. I don't want to do that to my bucket. <laughs> okay. Um, and um, then just stirring it around from time to time since it wouldn't be naturally getting like air from holes in the side or anything like that. Okay. Um, I will say one thing from the industry perspective, do not put biocompostable food, like uh, drinkware and silverware in your home compost. Right. Yes. So you might think you're doing the right thing buying like biodegradable forks and cups, corn, uh, what's it? Corn starch cups, whatever it's made out of. Mm -hmm. um, those can't be composted at home. You're not doing the right thing. Yeah. Luckily, I never tried that before I learned that. But it, there were years where I was like, cool, this is compostable. And I pictured that pile in my backyard, not the like industrial composting. Um, I do work in a grocery store now and we can compost pretty much anything because it's incinerated. And so it's like a very weird perspective um, because if you have a compost pile in your backyard, you don't want to put any like meat or oil or bread products because it could attract pests. Um, so that's all I eat though. So well, meat, I'm... bread, oil, that's all I do. Uh, <laughs> but there's not usually any scraps, you know what I'm saying? So <laughs> not much to put in the bucket from those. 
<laughs> Very true. Definitely, so. definitely all the greens I buy and then don't eat. Food waste is a whole other topic. <laughs> but that yeah. can go in the bucket. Yeah, exactly. And then at least you can say to yourself, it's not fully going to waste. So one of my main issues that's prevented me from ever really like committing to compost, um, well, so smell, which you talked about. If you have enough newspaper, it won't. Um, but then also bugs. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> does it, well, and I guess like raccoons and stuff, does this bring bugs and raccoons and I, does your compost bucket draw attention? So if you are doing a good mix of browns and greens, and I'll, I'll give you a resource and leave it in the show notes as well of like more details on how to do that. Um, as far as odor goes, you should be good. And as long as you're not putting in like chicken bones or anything covered in olive oil, um, bread, you shouldn't be getting like major pests, like, you know, rodents or raccoons or anything like that. Um, this is a very natural process as in the sense that like this is how things break out down in the world um there's a lot of leaf coverage where things are breaking down so it can help balance it out as far as bugs now personally i in my experience composting i've never had an issue with bugs in the house um i will say that fruit flies become an issue in the summer for us just kind of in general i wasn't composting last year but that definitely was an issue and i could see if you had a lot of like sweeter things breaking down in your compost inside you have a potential for fruit flies i don't want them anywhere near me or my garbage leave mm-hmm. my fruit alone flies. have you had that so issue what, there at your house have you ever had an issue with fruit flies um i think in like my first apartment it was annoying because there were holes in the screens of my windows gotcha. because you know how it goes, first apartment life. <laughs> um, so I definitely had fruit flies, but I just moved. Yeah, so I Classic. think, I think it, they are like kind of in a place or not, in my experience, like same thing with moths or ants. Like growing up, my house always had an ant problem in the summer, always had a moth problem in the winter. My current home, no issue at all. I think it really just depends. We do have a fruit fly thing, but the solution we found, we actually did get, we bought like a little glass fruit fly catcher. Um, it looks like a little oh. glass apple and you put apple cider vinegar in it. And then they're attracted to the smell because it's like, smells like rotting fruit. They go in and then they can't figure out how to get out because the opening is so small. So you can repeat this with a bowl or a cup filled with apple cider vinegar and then um, plastic wrap over the top with a few little holes in it. You can rubber band that on the top. This is what we did last year to catch them before we had the reusable option, which, you know, arguably is better. But if you are in a pinch, this works really great. And they basically just get stuck in there. They do drown. It's a little sad if you're like me. (laughs) and You're like (laughs) giving everything in the world a personality. But um, it is super effective. Yeah. So if that does come up, that's a solution. I don't know that it will, but I'd be curious to see, because it is warm now. I'd be curious to see um, what your experience is like this week. Yeah. Um, And then I guess my last question is, what if I want more raccoons? If you want more raccoons? How do I get 
more raccoons to come to my compost, to come to my house? How do I get more? Just leave them out of food outside, right? Uh, like, like meats, like chicken bones, stuff that shouldn't go in the compost? Yeah, yeah. Get those babies visiting you. <laughs> okay, okay. I guess. I don't know. I, I know that raccoons are omnivores, right? So they have a very broad, like, very diverse diet. And I know that they're definitely not picky eaters. Um, so I feel like most food would attract them. I think that's the issue people have with their garbage cans is that there's just a lot of food waste in their garbage can. We get raccoons all the time on our trucks, in dumpsters, in garbage toters. We get raccoons everywhere at work. In the ceiling of one of our transfer stations. Oh my gosh. It was awesome. <laughs> Um, so without smelling like a transfer station to get more raccoons, maybe more diverse foods in my bucket. There you go. I will keep that in mind <laughs> for the week. I will say, I should actually mention this. We were talking about bugs. I know you mentioned not wanting to put food scraps in your freezer, but that is a way people have found to just like prevent any issues with smelling. I cannot commit to composting where now I can't put good food in my freezer because right. it's garbage. What's, what's my boyfriend going to say? Oh, no, we, like, we can't get the Eggos this week. I've got all the banana peels in the freezer right now. Yeah. Oh, oh sorry, no ice cream this week. Uh, you know, it was, a big, it was a big chicken bone and orange slice week. I can't what? fit anything more. Well, don't put the ch – oh, wait, you're trying to get raccoons. That's right. I forgot. Yeah. We'll put in the show notes some more tips on what goes in your compost and how to do the green to brown mix. Mm -hmm. We'll try it for a week, um, and I'll let you know what my raccoon count is. <laughs> yeah, and definitely reach out to me if you are having questions. I mean, I haven't done it in a while myself. I don't know if I'm going to keep forgetting and like keep throwing things in the garbage. Honestly, I think for the first week, that'll probably be the biggest struggle. Um, but yeah, it, I do happen to have my, so my husband got it for me like two years ago. He got me like a stainless steel compost holder for inside your house. And it has like charcoal in the top to prevent odor. So I've had that for two years and I'm finally going to use it. Um, but really you can use like I will, anything. Yeah. I also have a fancy system. My Home Depot bucket, it's in the corner. I'm going to just throw some stuff in it. Home Depot, not sponsored, no ads. Just, <laughs> just who doesn't have a Home Depot bucket? It's in your garage. It's holding baseballs or, you know, what? it's holding... If you, that's where, you, where you're going to put your baseballs for batting practice, Sam, if they're not in the Home Depot bucket. <laughs> I mean, a valid point. Yeah, so you've got your batting practice balls in there, or you've got all your car chamois in your, and now you're just going to put your food waste in it, too. Home Depot. Not sponsored. Not sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna try it I'll do it but um well yeah like, I think that'll be really interesting to see if you like hate it tolerate it neutral liked it like you know it'll be interesting to see um which is why I genuinely like want to help you out and like give you resources and stuff because it I feel like it's not worth it if you're not doing it in a way that like makes it easy or makes it 
accessible. You know what I mean? Yes. And I am not lying. I do not do things that aren't easy. So yeah, any so resources. Figure out the, <laughs> the easiest way possible. You know, you've stated during this time that you're more attracted to the like more global, large scale things. And you feel like what difference can it make to do individual lifestyle changes? Which, yes, true. We're not going to save the earth on individual lifestyle changes alone. But every time a person decides to do something a little more earth friendly in their personal life, people will see it in their family and friend group in their community. And it'll seem less weird to those people. So like me being going to people's houses and being like, hey, do you have a compost pile? Like I was doing that, you know, without knowing I was doing that. But, um, you know, if you're a person who's never heard of compost and then more and more people are mentioning it or like have one or posting on their Instagram and talking about it and have a garden <laughs> or whatever, you'll start to be like, oh, that's normal. And then if your city is introducing curbside composting, you'd at least be like, oh yeah, I'm familiar with this. I get this. And so it's like a very small, um, I mean, it's a very slow process, but it can create a social or cultural change over time. And you can even see like, like the straw thing that blew up real fast. <laughs> like that made changes so quickly because a sea turtle had a straw in its nose. You know what I mean? Like you never know <laughs> what is going to spark that, but it could be just you making a small difference and people witnessing it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the small changes do lead to big cultural change, um, but they're even smaller when citywide curbside composting, it's not free and mm -hmm. it's not cheap. And price is a big prohibitor in all of this. And when you think of cities, you have to think of low income families as well and multifamily housing which also changes how you would do curbside collection because then who's accountable, who's paying, who's abusing the system, who's contaminating it, and then people don't sign on because it costs $60 a month to have it or whatever it is. Um, is that and then, for like an individual household? Um, so it would be like trash service. So right now a lot of places it's a subscription hauler where you pay like $15 a month and they come and pick up your trash. Mm -hmm. But in different areas, it could be higher or some places include the recycling with it. Um, gotcha. So yeah, it could be by individual house or it could be included in your taxes if it's a town-wide service. Yeah, so I mean, it's a really complicated thing. And then back to the point where it's not up to the individual how much more impactful would it be if all hospitals, if all schools, if all, you know, corporate buildings, corporate kitchens, if those places that are serving thousands of people a day had to compost? Oh, yeah. That would, be that would make the biggest difference in food mm -hmm. waste and making sure that good food gets to people okay food gets to animals uh then you compost and then you turn into to waste you know the, there's a the food hierarchy um and again i think it starts with big players not small players which is why i think we're so good for this podcast because i think 
No, I just think we have totally opposite perspectives on that. Yeah. Well, um, I think that you can't pressure a big player to do that until enough small players care. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But you're, you're totally right that, yeah, it's like me doing compost in my backyard isn't going to make a huge difference. But the hope is that, you know, it'll give me a sense of pride. Thank you everyone so much for tuning in this week for our very first podcast. Tune in next week to find out if April likes composting. Spoiler alert, I probably won't. But if you have your own good experiences or bad experiences with compost, feel free to rate and review us and we'll mention it in the next podcast. See you next week. Bye.